So the first thing you've got is the surface area of the vocal folds. The second thing you've got is the speed of movement of the vocal folds together. Now this is actually how fast together they clap. This is not about how many times per second they clap, which would be pitch. This is about how fast they move together and move apart. And yes, what I want to say, because I'm, I'm guessing where you're going, is, is to talk about volume. Yeah. I think as singing teachers, we can fall into the trap of, to access that volume, we must make our vocal folds thicker. Yeah. And that's not what you were talking about. No. You were talking about speed of closure. That's correct. So that can contribute perceptually to what some people might think of as a thick fold. Totally. Are you happy with that? Absolutely. We didn't even discuss this no. one. That's really good. This is A Voice, a podcast with Dr Gillian Kays and Jeremy Fisher. This is A Voice. Hello and welcome to Series 2, Episode 9. I just had to go back and count them. Uh, welcome to This is A Voice. I'm Jeremy Fisher. And I'm Dr Gillian Kays. And welcome back. Well, thank you for that. How are you feeling? Well, it's nice to be in the salad. In the, in the salad again. <laughs> I don't I don't particularly like being in the salad. It's all that greasy dressing. <laughs> it's nice to be back in the saddle again, even if only partially so. That was a great start, wasn't it? <laughs> even if we can't quite get the English right, but that's fine. So what are we doing today? Well, we well, you actually and um our trainer Anne Leatherland have been doing pop-ups while I've been busy recuperating. Yes. And we've had some interesting questions come up and we thought that we would start our series 2-9 by talking about some of these questions and riff around them. Well, the two pop-ups that in, in question were the Belting and Power Sounds pop-up and the My Sing Has a Voice Problem pop-up. And a question came from each of them, which is really mm. interesting. So we've got two AMAs today and we have a recording of the first one. So do you want to go straight in with that? Yes. Okay. This is Ashley. Hello, Gillian and Jeremy. Um, firstly, thank you for the brilliant uh, Belt and Power Sound pop-up workshop a couple of weeks ago. Um, my question has come out of this workshop and is regarding terminology. So my question is, what does thick and thin fold mean to you and how helpful or unhelpful is this term when we're talking about belt and power sounds on various pitches? Thank you both very much, and I look forward to hearing the podcast. It's a corker of a question, it isn't is it? It is a great question, It yes. is a brilliant question. Actually, I really appreciate, Ashley, that you sent us that question. Okay. Okay, strap can in. I, can I this start? Is, yes. Yeah. Can this... I start? I've had plenty of time to think about this. <laughs> I think what we should say first and foremost is that these terms, thick and thin fold, they're descriptors... Yep. And they're not actions. And I think that's really important as teachers and singers that we understand it, it's not an action that we can do. I'm going to make my folds thick. I'm going to make my folds thin. And I would also say that they're not definitive sounds either. Nope. I think they're probably a range of different timbres, if you like. So actually, I've got... A story for you, because okay. when we started talking about this, for those of you who are listening, we were very much kind of of the mind that these are terms that we don't use very much nowadays. And then guess what happened? Yesterday, I was giving a session to a client, and it was a term that she came up with herself when we were working on a kind of mechanism one, a chest mechanism sound in a, a popular music song. And I said, well, that was great. How does it feel? Oh, it feels thick and dense. Mm -hmm. And I've got to tell you, Jeremy, that I found myself saying, well, that's why we sometimes use the term thick folds. <laughs> <laughs> and what, okay. what that taught me is that there is a value in these terms if you're building proprioception with your students. So this client had 
some proprioceptive feedback from using her voice in a different way. And the word thick was the word that she used. Mm. I didn't feed it to her. So I think it's important that we have that awareness from a pedagogical point of view. Okay, but... um, You're going to argue with me now. I'm not, but I am. Um, Which sort of sums my life up, really. Uh, Okay, the reason I'm going to argue that I'm not going to argue is because you know that you and I like to come to a, uh, a person that we're working with and use the language that they're using as mm-hmm. far as we can. Mm-hmm. And this is also really interesting because when when somebody in front of you says, that's thick, in a way, you can't know what it is that they mean because they're feeling it, they're translating it, they're, they're putting a word on it. And the word that they use might be different to the word that you use. So even if somebody does use that word, I will go, I will want more information. It's like, can you describe it a bit better? Thick as opposed to what? Mm-hmm. Can you demonstrate something that is not thick so I can hear where you're coming? And this was a very different internal sensation for her than singing in her classical voice. Okay, great. And um, one of the things that we talked about later in the lesson when we were exploring how to match that sound further up in her vocal range was the idea that the thickness that she felt lower down would not feel as thick as she went higher up. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also a really important point point because what often happens with the use of these terms is they become polar opposites oh it's not a they binary not, system no, they're not opposite states it's not a binary system nope. as you've just said very nope. elegantly absolutely not um i've got another story go on this is a few years ago uh jeremy and i were invited to do a masterclass and workshop at uh, a college up in the north of England, and we were invited by someone we trained who had inherited students from another teacher. And those of you who are teachers, you always know how difficult this is. They come with somebody else's language, somebody else's exercises, Mm. somebody else's concept, and you have to find a way to navigate that in a comfortable way with them to move them forward rather than saying, oh, well, this is all wrong. Your teachers trained you incorrectly. That's actually not a positive way to work with a student, even if it's privately what you think, which wasn't the case. And there was a young uh, woman singing. I would say she was 17, 18, singing, you know, really working very hard in a piece of contemporary musical theatre. And she was trying really hard and it was solid and it was loud and... Um, I broke a bit of a rule because we got to the end and I I made a joke of it. And I said, well, thank you very much for working so hard. But do you really need to sing the shit out of your thick folds? Mm. And we all had a bit of a laugh about it. And what we did then was we adjusted that the heaviness, the subglottal pressure, the amount of effort that she was using. And you know what's so interesting then? Apart from the fact it was a better performance and she had more ease, we heard more of her. Oh, that's really mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. And and I come across this a lot. Um, the, the whole binary thing, which is it's either thick or it's thin. And it's got to stay thick and thick is thick. And, you know, you're, you're thick all the way up. And all of that about the whole thick, thin thing, mm. which is it's immovable. Yeah, and I think it's something that singing teachers have grabbed, and they have grabbed it from clinicians. Mm. So as part of preparation for this, one of the things I did was I referred to our Bible, which is the Voice Clinic Handbook. Yep. And I had a look at some of the ways that um, Mr. Tom Harris talks about the thickness and consistency of the vibrating mass of the vocal fold. Um, And he likens it to the idea that you have uh, different thicknesses of string. So if you're thinking about a stringed instrument, uh, the pitch and the tonal quality of that vibrating string depend not just on the tensioning of it, which is largely what's responsible for the, the pitch, but also the thickness or vibrating mass of that string. So if you have a string that's overwound, or if you have, you know, a single sort of um, string of metal, 
if you like, um, or if you have gut strings, so steel strings, gut strings, overwound strings, they all sound different. So when we're talking about the thickness and thinness of the vocal fold, that's actually probably the most significant thing that we're talking about. And should you head to the Voice Clinic Handbook and read this particular chapter, which is the laryngopharyngeal mechanisms in normal function and dysfunction, uh, I recommend that you read the next few pages and you will discover that there is more than one way to skin a cat, mm. which is actually one of the subheadings, which I rather like. Mm. There's something I want to, to unpick, having made a fairly dramatic statement. The difficulty for me is that this is not about the, the words themselves, but the way that they're applied to singing and singing teaching and students and teachers, which it seems to be that if the sound is loud, it's thick folds, and if the sound is soft, it's thin folds. And first of all, that's so binary, and secondly, it's so inaccurate. And I want to say why mm -hmm. it's inaccurate, because let's talk about volume. And the relationship about with volume and how you can make your output loud. Mm. And there are several things that you can do. So we're talking about the surface area of the vocal folds that come into contact. Essentially, the bigger the surface area that comes into contact, uh, then the more air that's displaced and the louder the sound. So if you just get your hands and clap them together and you clap with your whole palm and all four fingers... Mm -hmm then actually what's happening is that you, as your hands come together, they are displacing an, um, an, an amount of air. And because that surface area of your hand is quite big, it's displacing quite a lot of air quite fast. And therefore, that's making the air around it disturbed in quite a big way. If you do the same thing, but instead of all four fingers, you just clap with two fingers then you're still getting a clap. But because that surface area is not moving as much air, mm. it's not as loud. So the first thing is, how much surface area are you using? Mm. I think that's very sensible. And part of that surface area equation, if you like, um, needs to take into account what's happening at the deeper layers because we have a layered system. Haven't got there yet. No, but I think it needs to be mentioned. Yep. And also... And, you know, I think we should be forgiven for being simplistic because we are not clinicians. But there's um, a considerable interplay going on between the intrinsic muscles of the larynx as well yes. in order to facilitate all of this. So yes. it's really not a one-stop or two-stop shop. Okay, I have six or seven of these, so you sort of shortcut a bit, but I want to go back and okay. unpack. So the first thing you've got is the surface area of the vocal folds. The second thing you've got is the speed of movement of the vocal folds together. Now, this is actually how fast together they clap. This is not about how many times per second they clap, which would be pitch. This is about how fast they move together and move apart. And yes, what I want to say, because I'm, I'm guessing where you're going, is, is to talk about volume. Yeah. I think as singing teachers we can fall into the trap of to access that volume we must make our vocal folds thicker yeah and that's not what you were talking about no you were talking about speed of closure so that can contribute perceptually to what some people might think of as a thick fold totally are you happy with that absolutely we didn't even discuss this no. one that's really good. Cool. Okay, so the next thing, and this is a really interesting one, because this is also about output, is how much downward pressure is there above the vocal folds? Ah, you're and talking about the supraglottic forces. Supraglottic forces, mm. which is basically, as the, the, the sound has been made at the vocal folds and the vibrations are travelling up through your throat, and is the throat completely open with no obstructions whatsoever, or are there things going on? And this is, of course, where SOVT comes in, mm. uh, semi-occluded mm. vocal tract. Mm. So, for instance, you could um, back the tongue slightly, which would interfere with the airflow up and out, and that might make it stronger, because you have more back pressure down onto the vocal folds. <gasps> can, I, can I interject? Yeah, of course. This is the second edition of the Voice Clinic Handbook. Oh, right. Can I come out with another factoid? You can. So, um, Harris et al. quote Tietze, 2011. And Tietze says, highly tempting generalisation that large vocal folds, especially thick vocal folds, 
produce a, a lower frequency simply because they have more mass needs to be abolished. Hooray. Vocal fault, vocal fault vibration is a wave phenomenon. That's what Jeremy's just been talking about. Standing and travelling waves in which the tissue does not move uniformly and therefore no centre of mass or the mass itself can be defined easily. Ooh, I like that. Isn't it gorgeous? Uh, vocal fold dimensions do affect frequency, but differently for length, thickness and depth. Good. I'm liking that. Yeah, so it's a real kind of interplay of ideas. And I want do, to, do you want to say a bit more? I want to go just right back to basics, which is let's assume, let's go with the thick fold title for the moment. Mm. And you go, okay, I am singing C4, middle C. Mm-hmm. Whether I'm a man or a woman, I am singing C4. And C4 in a woman is going to be middle low, and C4 in a man is going to be middle high mm -hmm. in their range. So my vocal folds are thick to a given amount of thickness. You've set a vibrating mass. Yes. Before doing anything to adjust. Yes. Yeah. Okay, okay so cool. I am singing C4 to a given thickness to a given volume. Mm-hmm. I want to keep the same type of sound and I want to keep the same type of volume, but I want to jump up an octave. Oh, good luck with that. <laughs> so now I'm on C5. He's a bass. Yeah, well, I don't do C5s, but but some guys do. Hmm. Um, sorry, C5 has never passed my lips. Um, but some, some guys do, and a lot of women do. Hmm. So... Let's say I achieve that. And if you want to say I'm in belt, if you want to say that's fine, if you want to say I'm in a chest voice or I'm, I'm in a power sound, whatever, that doesn't actually matter for the moment what title you give it. The point is that you are now vibrating at approximately the same volume an octave higher. So your, your vocal folds are vibrating twice as fast. Mm -hmm. Are they still thick? Because if they are the same thickness, how did you make them vibrate twice as fast? Mm. Something has to change. And if something has to change, I don't believe that you can take the same level of depth or thickness or mass or anything up an octave and it still be the same mass. So the whole business of my vocal folds are thick and my vocal folds are thick all the time simply doesn't make sense the moment you bring pitch into it. Mm. Because mm. somehow the vocal folds have either got to tense or lengthen or do something to make them vibrate faster. And the moment they do that, you have lost your, quotes, thickness level. Mm -hmm. Or you may need to lose the um, lose some of the mass by not working so hard. At the level of the vocalis, yes. at the level of, of thyroarotenoid. So we've done surface area. We've done what happens when you raise pitch. Mm. We've done how much downward pressure there is. Uh, there's something else as well, which is how many muscle fibres in the vocalis are involved in phonation. That's just where I'd got to. Yep. So it's also this idea that if your vocal folds are thick, then the muscle is on and all the fibres are on and they're all tensed and everything is thick. And first of all... I'm, are we sensing a theme here, dear I'm, listeners? I'm not completely convinced that that's the case Actually, anyway. it's important. Can I, I'm going to interrupt because the, um, the origin of the question was in relation to belting and power sounds. Yes. And what I think you've nicely described is that even if you are in a power sound, whether you want to call it belting or not... As you go up a fifth, there will be an adjustment of the vibrating mass. Yeah. And this seems to me to be the key thing. Yeah. Because there is this idea of there is going to be for each individual and maybe for each timbre that we're looking for, there's going to be a point of critical vibrating mass where you cannot mm. vibrate any faster at that mass, and therefore there has to be an adjustment. And there are a variety of adjustments. There are a variety, that's the thing. Okay, the first thing that you might be able to do is to actually stretch the vocal fold from outside, mm. which will tense it. And a, a tensed vocal fold will vibrate faster. But there's another thing that you can do, which is to release some of the muscles inside the vocalis, which will actually have the same effect without stretching the vocal folds, mm. because the tensile strength inside the muscle goes down and therefore that can vibrate faster. There's a third thing that you can do, which is to release the muscle completely. 
which in our book is M2. Mm -hmm. uh, some people call it falsetto, some don't. But if you think about going up to that C5, um, you might go into M2, but you can use supraglottal forces in order to make the sound stronger. And therefore, your your vocalis is not particularly active in the sound, but it's still another way of getting up to that C5. And you can make it extremely powerful with acoustic forces. Mm. Mm. So just, that's, that's... just because it's loud doesn't mean it's necessarily thick. Well, yes. Is that, you it know? It absolutely is, yeah. So... And, oh, and by the way, some people don't even acknowledge the fact that there is, M, uh, was it uh, a ducted falsetto? which is in the science literature. But they go, oh, falsetto is always breathy. No, it absolutely isn't. There is a thing called adducted falsetto, and that's partly due to the supraglottal forces. So you can have an extremely powerful adducted falsetto. So where does that leave us? I think for us, the way that we work with our singers and with our teachers is that if these terms are discussed, and I mean, let's face it, they were in my first edition of Singing and the Actor. They're, you know, they've been out there for a while. That we will talk about it as being a continuum, and we prefer to say thinner, thicker, and that there's more than one way to thin the vocal folds, and there's more than one way to get a heavy, perceptually thicker sound. Yeah. And I think that's uh, really important. I also think, you know, we've been talking about the vibrating mass of the vocal folds, and we've already said that if you're an octave higher, you're never going to be as thick as you were an octave lower. And I think it's highly unlikely, let's put it that way. Yeah. And because from a mechanical point of view, that's not going to be very functional. So back referring to the question, we think you could be making a power sound on a thicker or thinner vocal fold yeah. on an M1 or an M2. Yeah. And we're not saying that M1 and M2 necessarily equate with thick and thin. They don't. We're not going to go there. Um. I think the terms, are they useful? My advice is use with caution. Okay, I'm, I'm going to throw some questions to people. Um, let's assume that we are talking thicker and thinner. So my first question you've already heard, which is how do you raise pitch? Uh, and just asking that question alone will make you think, how do you raise pitch and keep the vocal fold thickness exactly the same? That's a curious question. My second question is volume. How do you sing the same note at different volumes? Yeah, what are you doing? What do you do? And the moment you start asking yourself those questions, you, you might go, well, I don't know. <laughs> which is, it's like join the club. Um, there are certain things that we do know and there are certain things that we don't. Mm. If you think, for instance, about the one thing that we haven't mentioned, which is breath pressure. You're talking about subglottal pressure. Subglottal pressure, which we, is... We a, have. We mentioned it in passing. A combination... We whizzed by. We did, we did. We waved at it as it went by. Um, it's a combination of the amount and speed of air that's coming up from the lungs and the amount that the vocal folds resist it. So subglottal pressure, as far as I'm concerned, is directly underneath the vocal folds mm -hmm. and is caused by both air amount and air speed from underneath and the resistance of the vocal folds from above. Mm. And I mean, in its simplest terms, you can have, you can hold your air back or you can feed it upwards. You can make your air go very fast through your vocal folds, or you can make it go slowly. You can trickle it through. So the airspeed is only happening in the open phase, isn't yes. it? Yes. So. Yes. Yes. So isn't Just that to be clear? Isn't that exciting? So I mean, if you like, there's in instantly three questions that you ask yourself, which are all completely useful questions, and mm. they are all part of singing. They're all part of performing. They're all part of artistry. That you go, well, the moment I put those questions in, how can you have thick and thin? As opposites. As, well, even just the, the words thick and thin do not include any variations on the same note or on different notes. Oh, and the other factors, such as the subglottal pressure, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. and yeah. supraglottal. And in a way, that's why I don't use them at all anymore, because in a way, they're 
they're so vague. Mm. And also, in a way, they're so easily applicable to 55 million different things. And one person can say that's thick folds and the next person listening can go, no, that's not. And, you know, what I mean, kind of thinking back, you know, and because obviously it was in my book and, you know, that's what was out there in terms of some of the pedagogical knowledge that was being put out at that time that I wrote the book. I think it felt like 25 years ago, 30 years ago, it felt more concrete Mm. than what, you know, what my lovely singing teacher when I was training as a classical singer, you know, the most physiology I got from her was breathe out to sing. Which Which is very sensible. It's kind of a bit of a no-brainer, but, you know, (laughs) yes, okay. Um, But it wasn't terribly helpful. She taught me to sing a phrase wonderfully. Um, but it just seemed more concrete at the time. And the thing is, it's just not as simple as that. I think that's what we'd like to say. Yeah, I'd go with that. So in a way, I don't use um, thick and thin at all anymore. I'm much more interested in using M1, M2 and all the variations that each one of those can have. Mm. Because in M1, uh, on an, an M1 and M2 refers to the vibrational mode of the vocal folds and what the vocal folds themselves are doing, how they're working, and, and what's on and what's off. And I think what's interesting about M1 and M2 is that within those, either of them, you can change the surface area of the vocal folds, you can change the speed of the movement, you can even change how close together or far apart the vocal processes are, you can change how much downward pressure there is, the only thing you can't do in M2 that you can do in M1 is to change the number of muscle fibres involved in phonation. It's pretty much the only thing you can't do. And because you can do that, now we're on M1 and M2, You a whole world of colour and variety and descriptors open up. Yeah, I mean, we've both found that enormously helpful. And I will say, I cannot imagine myself now ever saying to a student, can you thicken your folds? Can you thin your folds? And the question would then be how? Mm, mm. It's really interesting because these, essentially these words, although they're very simple and straightforward, are conceptual mm. and they cover a multitude of sins. And I think that's why I don't use them anymore is they're so vague. Mm, mm. Cool. Um, so, uh, Are Ashley, we done with that, Ashley? Have, have we answered your question? Are you any clearer? <laughs> So we use them, essentially... Use with caution. We use them when somebody else uses them. But even then, we don't decide what that person means. We actually find out what they mean themselves. Yeah, and then feed it back to them. Yeah. And reframe if necessary. And reframe if necessary, yeah. Okay. Right. Well, that was (laughs) rip-roaring. We had... Um, the next pop-up that we did was the um, My Singer Has a Voice Problem with Carrie Garrett. And it was such a great pop-up course. It was such a great workshop. And we had some very interesting things happen afterwards. So Carrie Garrett, um, highly specialist. Highly specialist speech and language therapist. In voice. And also a singing teacher and also a singer. Yes. So she actually comes from all angles. And that was really great on that course because we had somebody who was not just experienced in the voice clinic, but also Mm. experienced as a performer and experienced as a performer in contemporary commercial music, Mm. not just classical. And I wasn't there for that at all. In fact, I haven't seen it. Uh, Carrie did an in-person day for us back in 2020. She did. In uh, February 2020, I think. And because obviously we're not doing in-person courses in, in that um, in that way anymore at the moment, we asked her if she would do us a, a two-hour pop-up. And it was very interesting because um, we made a statement. Um, about hydration. About hydration. And the whole thing about hydration. And it was interesting because four different people uh, came up afterwards and said, but I thought it was. And the statement that we made was, it takes about four hours for water to get into your system and as far as the vocal folds and basically to hydrate you. Mm. And uh, people came up and they said, well, I thought it was two hours. And somebody else said, well, I thought it was one hour. Well, I thought it was 25 minutes. Well, I thought it was instant. So, Eight was another one we heard. Yeah. And I think the last one was about 25 minutes. Yeah. yeah. So we were not daunted. No. 
I mean, we... We, we both headed off down rabbit holes. We did. We did. And boy, are there some rabbit holes. So the first thing that we did was we went to the literature to find out who has the definitive answer. How long does it take to hydrate? And um, I've actually written an article about it, which I'm going to to publish with this this um, podcast. Do you want to say a little bit, first of all, about systemic versus topical? Yeah, yeah. So the first thing is, what type of hydration are we talking about? There's two types, basically. One is systemic, which is your entire body. And the other is topical, which is basically spraying onto the surface. Um Bear in mind that if you drink something, it can't be topical because when you drink, your vocal folds close completely and the the water goes nowhere near your vocal folds. If it did, you'd cough. So the only way that you can get topical water onto your vocal folds is by steam or nebulizer. So we don't hydrate the vocal folds directly. We hydrate the body. We hydrate the body. And the idea of the systemic is that therefore... That water has gone into the body and it assists with efficiency of vocal fold vibration. And I'm going to let you talk a bit more about this. I might ask you questions as we go along. Do you? Okay. So the first thing um, I went to is what is hydration? And the moment you go into the question, what is hydration? You go into the question, what is dehydration? Mm. And there was an even one that I'd not heard of, which is euhydration, EU, hydration, which is a balanced hydration. So um, hydration, dehydration, um, and there's another one. There's a, there's a further one, isn't there? You've just said it, EU. No, there's, uh, there's um, uh, like superhydration where you have too much. Okay. But I'll come to that in a moment. So the question first is, what's dehydration? What are the effects of dehydration? And to that, you go to various papers. And a lot of people have done um, studies on dehydration and their effects. And I want to shout out to Catherine Verdolini Abbott, because she has done some great papers with Tietze on um, the effects on the vocal folds of hydration. They're very good. So um, we will put links to Mm. them. Uh, Certainly, you can read the abstract. You might not be able to read the whole thing. And she chose particularly as her uh, feature, phonation threshold pressure. And phonation threshold pressure is what is the least amount of energy force that you can use to get your vocal folds vibrating? What is the gentlest sound that you can make and the least effort that you can do, essentially? Mm. And what she discovered really, and I am paraphrasing here, so um, Catherine, if you are listening, then I do apologise if I get it wrong. Um, what they discovered is that dehydration affects the phonation pres- threshold pressure. I always have a problem with that phrase, PTP. Just say PTP. Now. It affects the PTP uh, to make that threshold go up. So you have to work slightly harder. So the effect for the singer, therefore, is it's going to feel more effortful to make a sound. We are talking tiny. We are mm-hmm. talking fractional, mm. but it, they have to work slightly harder. It's almost like the vocal folds are slightly stickier. And they might need a higher breath pressure. So yeah. they're having to take a bigger breath to get the vocal folds vibrating. Yeah. And mm. again, I don't think the effect is enormous, but it's there. And mm. if you're a highly experienced singer, you're going to notice it. Well, and I think you might also notice something like that over time. You know, if you're talking all day on Zoom. Yeah. And assuming that, you know, perhaps your hydration levels aren't what they need to be, your systemic hydration levels, then as you go through the day, you might find that you're having to push harder, take more breaths in order to continue speaking. I I would say those are the sorts of things that might be a sign that your phonation threshold pressure is increasing. Yeah. Um, So, and Verdolini's... I think the first paper came out in 1990. It was certainly 1992. Mm. And I, I came right up to date with uh, 2020. He's um, done a survey of the literature. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jeannie van der Linde and et al, because she works with a lot of different people. Really interesting what she's doing. She is doing research on hydration and voice quality, mostly on female voices. Mm-hmm. That's quite interesting. Look up those. Again, I'll put links in. Mm. I want to go, the place to go when you're looking on a sort of generalised topic like this, is somebody else doing the literature review for you. Mm -hmm. And there are three, I think, really good papers to to, um, have a read of. And the first one I want to start with is Sivisankar and Leyden. 
2010, The Role of Hydration in Vocal Fold Physiology. They have some cracking stuff in this. It's quite a tough read because there's, there's graphs and charts and things, but it's absolutely worth working your way through because they looked at a whole load of other people's research and analysed what they'd done. And what they said, and I'm quoting, data from animal and human subject studies have revealed that systemic and superficial dehydration are detrimental to vocal fold physiology. Hey. Eh? Yeah. Okay. Dehydration. Oh, dehydration. Dehydration. <laughs> Systemic and superficial dehydration, keep up, yes. are detrimental to vocal fold physiology. The negative effects of dehydration on voice support a clinical focus on hydration intervention. So they, you know, this is what they... They, they if recommend. You, if No, if you like, this is what people were recommending. Mm. While there is some evidence for increased systemic and superficial hydration in promoting laryngeal health, further research is needed to validate current clinical recommendations. Now, this was really fascinating. What they were saying in 2010, and interestingly, we were asking Carrie about this and she was asking around, and it's been really fascinating hearing what other people have, have said, mm. which is we all have recommendations and there isn't that much research to back the recommendations up which is really fascinating. Or it, it could be more, from what you've told me from the reading that you did, is that there's no firm um, concurrence of opinions on timing. And that's the key thing, isn't it? Because Or even amount. And amount, yeah. Because I can remember being told two litres of water a day and then taking on board the um, four hours in advance of whatever you needed to do. And I know that um, singers in drama schools and actors in drama schools, they're always walking around clutching their bottles of water, their litres of water. And uh, voice clinicians, speech and language therapists very typically are advising um, more water and more hydration for their clients. And th there are good reasons for this. But it's interesting about these kind of rules that people come out with. So what did you find out, Jeremy, in terms of amounts? Oh, yeah. Are you ready for that? That was really fascinating. Mm, I was okay. really surprised the, when you told me this. The first place I think you should go, um, if you're interested in this, there's a brilliant three-minute video on hydration. It's a tutorial video by the European Federation of the Association of Dietitians. And I'll give you the link in the show notes. It's absolutely packed with information in three minutes. And it's really fascinating because the first thing I didn't realise was that uh, the recommendations are for different amounts of water for men and women. Mm. Obviously, different amounts of water for children. But even within the women, you've got different amount of water for um, women, a different amount for pregnant women and a different amount for lactating women. And actually, it's the lactating women that need the most water. But even within that, this is where the fun starts, is the recommendations. And there are two different bodies that they refer to. Um, it boils down to approximately two litres a day for men and one and a half litres a day for women. But... I'm so glad because I find it really hard to drink two litres of water. Yeah, but it depends where you live. Because in Europe, the recommendation... Um, is two litres a day for men and one and a half litres a day for women. But if you're in Poland, it's half a litre more for each one. And I have no idea why Poland is different. Um, because Mexico is two and one and a half and China is two and one and a half. So in general around the world, it's two litres a day and one and a half litres a day. So that was really fascinating. So it doesn't actually depend on where you live. It's just the findings it's, differ. It's the findings. But now let's go to where your water comes from, which is, is it liquid or is it from food? Mm. Because... And um, what kind of liquid? Well, what kind of liquid? Absolutely. So if you just go with liquid and food, 70 to 80% of your liquid intake comes... Uh, your water intake comes from liquid. So it can be water, but it can also be tea, coffee, alcohol, beer, soft drinks. It can be anything. That's all counted as liquid intake, mm. 70 to 80%. 20 to 30% comes from food, which you really wouldn't necessarily well, soup, notice. soup is an obvious one. But meat, 
Yes. I mean, literally anything you eat has water content in it of some kind. And didn't you look at a study where they had to stop their subjects eating lettuce? Yes. Because I that's did. a high water content. Yes. Lettuce, cucumber, tomatoes. Yep. There was a, oh, I got to mention that study because it is amazing. Mm. Uh, this is Marshall et al., March 2021. It's absolutely up to date. They go in depth into hydration on pulmonary function. Now they're dealing with with breathing in particular, but the the way that they've written up their paper is amazing. They are so detailed. They've got every, they list every piece of equipment, but not just that, they actually have catered for, excuse the pun, um, almost every variable that might happen. And one of the things that they mm. did was they took a food diary before the people did their experiment. And they had to do the experiment over two sessions because one session was on systemic uh, hydration, which was drinking, and the other was on topical hydration, which was inhaling. And they mm. had to do the two on separate occasions. And so what they insisted that the subjects did was that they ate exactly the same thing each time. So really controlling variables. Really controlling mm, variables. Nifty. And they checked the air quality. They checked the water content in the atmosphere. They did all sorts of things in that paper. Did they find any difference uh, in things like um, body mass index? How did yes. they How did they control for that? And gender? Well, I want to go to um, gender. They did they did spot a difference too, but I want to go to a different paper because mm. this is where I thought let's go to the sports people mm. because I'm really interested that the sports people might have something to do with this, and I've got to find the reference for it. Because obviously, I'm, if you go to the gym, there's always water on hand, isn't it? And you're told to um, stay hydrated. Yep. Um, can't find the. Oh, here. Uh, no, lost it. Okay, can't find the reference at the moment, but I will put it in the show notes. Mm. It was something like the American Association of Athletics Trainers put out a statement in 2017, and they were talking about systemic hydration. And um, one of the indicators of a lack of systemic hydration is body mass index. So if your body mass changes more than 2%, over a very short period of time, it indicates that you're dehydrated. Mm. Um, and it also, of course, is not across the board because it depends, uh, it depended for them what type of athletic activity mm. the people were doing. So you had your standard athlete, if there is such a thing, and um, they could go anything up to 5% body mass loss and they were still okay. Past 5% and they were starting to get performance drop off and also brain fog. Mm. Uh, so they were unable to concentrate as well. Mm. But if you are a long-distance aerobic athlete, so I'm assuming marathon runner, mm -hmm. you only had to drop 2% and, and your performance nosedived. Mm. And it's really interesting because I'm thinking um, of singers, and particularly opera singers, mm -hmm. as being more of your athletic long-term aerobic. Yeah, yeah. They're and, more like the long-distance runners. Yeah. But then, interestingly, you can't really separate musical theatre from opera because in musical in opera, there's not that much athletic dancing. And in musical theatre, there is. And also, I mean, you know, when performances are, are the norm, you would probably perform two or three times a week, maybe four at the most, whereas as a musical theatre singer... It would be six to eight shows a um, week. So your vocal load is potentially higher than the operatic voice. I'm going to I'm going to pick that up because actually I was corrected on that years ago mm. when somebody said, I think it was in Australia, and somebody said, I am a member of the Australian National Chorus. We sing six days a week. Oh, right. Yes, well, that's a fair comment. And of course, they comment. do. And that's yes. a fair comment. I'm glad you did pick up on that, actually. I want to go one more place, which is what type of dehydration are we talking? Mm. And actually this is, in a way this is really important because um, we're talking about hydration, but hydration is the opposite of something. Mm. Um, and I, you, you know, you must drink water, you must drink water because you need to keep hydrated, but from what? Mm. So I want to talk about dehydration and there are two types and they are really interesting to know about. The first one is hyperosmolar, which is water loss and an increase in sodium. 
So your water drains away, but your salt is left there. Mm. And that's hyperosmola. So you've got an intensification of some of the electrolytes. You do. Uh, and the second one is hyponatremia, which is both water and salt loss. And there's a famous anecdote Anthony about Andrews. This. Anthony Andrews was doing the role of Professor Higgins in My Fair Lady in the West End and collapsed. Fortunately, not on stage. He was um, he just finished the, the show and gone home, I think. But he collapsed and he ended up on a drip in hospital for three days. And he, in fact, he was unconscious. Not for the three days, but he was unconscious. And that was hyponatremia because he'd been drinking too much water. Mm, mm. And he estimated that he'd been drinking between five and seven litres a day. And just any time he went off stage, he was swigging the water before, during and after. And probably visiting the loo. And because of that extreme use of water, he'd actually diluted his tissue salts so far that he lost consciousness. So it is possible to drink more water than is good for your body. It is. And I, I just want to say about this, you know, thinking about the the litres of water, you know, the two litres or the, the one and a half litres. I would expect Jeremy to need to drink more water than I need. Can I just say, I'm rather larger than Gillianis. You know, and my BMI is 19.3 or something like and that mine these days. isn't. Yeah. No, indeed. <laughs> yes, it isn't. Yeah. So um, where, where can we leave them? I, I've just, okay, I want to go back to the original yeah. question, mm. which is... The original question take? was, how long does it take? And the answer is, I couldn't find out. No. Because different We did try. People, we we really we tried. I mean, basically, if anybody out there has the answer to this, which is how long does it take, and they can give me paper references, fantastic. Please uh, email in or speak pipe in speakpipe.com slash vocal process mm. and actually, you know, put we'll your voice play to it. it. We'll, we'll play, play it. it. Uh, because I actually really am interested to know. And I know that in some papers, they only waited 25 minutes. And in some papers, they waited an hour or two hours. So, which is where I think this confusion comes from. Mm. It sort of depends which paper you read, who says what. But in a way, it's it's a bit the same, really, as the thick and thin folds, because you have to ask the right questions. It also depends where you start. I mean, quite a lot of these studies, because they had to have uh, they had to start people off on the same baseline. They had to start them off in a state of dehydration. Otherwise, there's nothing to measure. Yeah. Now, hopefully, most of us aren't in that state. So when we get to... Jeremy's grinning at me. Well, I know, because I want to talk about dehydration. Because in a lot of the papers, they mm. didn't dehydrate them naturally. They gave them decongestants and diuretics. And diuretics. Mm. So you are unnaturally dehydrated before you start. And mm. then the question becomes, when you ingest the water and you wait an hour, mm. is the body reacting as it would normally do each day? I mean, there's just so many questions. So let's see if we can find a place to leave the listeners. So again, we're going to say things to think about. Yeah. Is there an impact on your voice? Have you noticed an impact on your voice dependent on how much or how little water you drink? Yes. Just maybe keep a diary for a week and notice it if you're using your voice. There is an impact on the body generally and on your homeostatic balance. That is unquestionable. Yeah. Well, Jeremy's quoted a very nice study on impact on voice from Kitty uh, Verdolini-Abbott and um, colleagues. Your body mass index might make a difference. Yes. The environment that you're working in might make a difference. Yes. I can remember doing presentations where I was having hot air blown at me from a rather old-fashioned overhead projector and finding that I was losing my voice at the end of the day yeah. because I was hot and it was very drying. Be aware of things like that. Also, what activity are you doing? Are you a dancer? Mm. Are you dancing and singing at the same time, either as a, you know, a, a pop backing vocalist or as a musical theatre singer? It's highly likely that you're going to need more water than you would if you were standing still and singing. Yes. And think about your vocal load. How many hours a day are you working? How long are you speaking for at a time? And find out what works for you 
And when you're advising your students, bear in mind that they may be a different size from you and they may be working in a different environment and give them advice that allows them to be flexible. There's one more thing I would say, which is we we talked earlier about people swigging water during lessons. And I'm going to say too late. Mm. Because what we're really talking about when we're talking about hydration is body water balance. And that's input-output. It's like what level of hydration is your body in general? And if you just drink those two glasses a day, two, I'm sorry, two, one and a half or two litres a day Mm. in general, then your body water index should be enough to keep you hydrated. And then all you're doing really is replacing stuff that you then use in a performance situation. Mm. You're not trying to swig all your water intake down in one go. So we're keeping our levels up generally. Yes. I'm, I'm glad you've said that because it just occurred to me that this whole sort of story, this whole narrative has come about maybe for two reasons. One, which is anecdotally, many of us do not drink enough water. And the second is there's a tendency for people to drink the water when their throat feels sore, when their throat feels dry. And what we're saying is it's likely that that's too late. Hence the advice from singing teachers and coaches and clinicians to hydrate earlier. Mm -hmm. So in answer to the question that came up, is it four hours? Is it two hours? Is it one hour? Is it 25 minutes? The answer is yes. <laughs> Find out what works best for you. Find out what works best for you. Okay. I think we're probably done on that one. I think one. the overall title <laughs> of this podcast should be It Depends. Yes. So if you have any questions that you want to ask us for the next uh, podcast, mm. then please go on to speakpipe.com slash vocal process. Ask the question. We will play it. And we'll put some references to articles and to the Voice Clinic Handbook. We will. And so forth. And to that uh, little video. Oh, uh, the video, which is lovely. Yes. In the show notes. Yes. And we look forward to hearing from you. Lovely. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. This is a voice a podcast with Dr. Gillian Kays and Jeremy Fisher.